Amen. Amen. Um, if you've had a challenging morning, um, I want to let you know that you're welcome here. Um, it's been uh, quite the the uh, octagon over here on the front row, if you've not seen that. And um, we concluded with a three-year-old sticking his finger in my eye while I go point at something, and so my contact is relocated. So if you see me uh, batting the eye, that's that's the reason. And so... Anyway, um, so moments are challenging, aren't they? Uh, we have moments in life that are challenging. And, and uh, this morning at my home was probably one of the most spirit-filled times I've had just running through a message prior to coming in here. And so um, to fall on the heels of that has been one of the most discombobulated mornings of worship I've had in a very long time. And so if you feel that way, if you feel frantic, if you feel chaotic, if you feel like, why am I even here? Is this even going to make any difference? Um, I, I want us just to maybe um, be still and just let the Lord do what only He can do, to speak into our lives, into our situations, into our moments when we're reminded that we're not in control and um, that we are weak, we are frail, that our flesh often wants to respond. Um, and so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 26, uh, kind of this, this, this theme over it all. What's the evidence of genuine repentance? Looking at the evidence of genuine repentance. And uh, repentance is a word literally indicating a change of mind. Um, it's a change of life saying that my way is wrong and, and God, your way is right. And kind of what I, I want you to leave with is just this simple statement that ongoing obedience is the evidence of genuine repentance. Ongoing obedience is the evidence of genuine Repentance. That's going to be Paul's point here. He's, he's just, if you've been with us, he just finished out um, in Acts 26 for the last time in the book of Acts, giving his testimony of how he encountered uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, originally back in Acts chapter 9. And he's going to share with us about verse 19 that he was obedient to the heavenly vision. It's not simply that he had this great vision, that he is obedient to it. And scripture continually just wants to make this point emphatic for us. Um, we hear in John chapter 15 where Jesus speaks and he says, it, It's for my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. He says, listen, it's not simply that you claim to be my disciple, but the bearing of the fruit gives validity to your claim. It's Paul as he writes to Titus and he tells them in John or Titus chapter 1 verse 16. He said, these people claim to know God, but by their very actions, their lifestyle, they deny. So in James chapter 2, when we have that familiar refrain where James speaking about faith and works and looking at both of them. And he says, well, very simply, faith without works is what? It's dead. So Isaiah the prophet, some 600 years prior to Christ, says in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus picks up that refrain and literally cites that very passage. He says it's not only true back in Isaiah's day, it is true now. So continually the Word of God is working to say, Listen, it's not simply that we are professors of faith, we are also possessors. There should be a transformation of your and my life that provides validity to the claim that we are followers of Christ. So today we're going to look at that, just this evidence of genuine repentance. And again, the key thing I want you to leave with this is this. Ongoing obedience is the evidence of genuine repentance. And with that said, I want to throw one little caveat, little asterisk at you. Today we are talking about 
the evidence of your genuine salvation. We are not talking about how you earn salvation. That is a totally different thing. All right? So we are saying that it is indeed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that a person is saved. It's by grace you've been saved, um, not by works so that no one can boast. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace alone. But we're saying, how do we know that we've truly received that grace? How might we know that we have truly responded to the gospel and and be, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are what? Born again. So how can I know that I'm born again, that I might know that I'm truly heading to the kingdom of heaven? And 1 John 5 and 13 would remind us, these words, the word of God is written so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this morning, as we look to Acts chapter 26, I want us to take maybe just a a little snapshot from Philippians 3 that I think helps provide maybe a a, a framework by which you can understand the entirety of what Paul's after. So look with me, if you would, really quickly. Philippians chapter 3. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those, look what he says here, who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow Christ. And he says, listen, I want you guys to keep your eyes on those, not that simply profess to follow Christ, but look what it's interesting. He says, those who walk, it is their lifestyle. The way of walking indicates biblically a lifestyle of the individual. He says, that's the people I want you to look to. Why? He says, well, verse 18 of Philippians 3. For many, he says, of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears. Now look at this. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And you say, wow. So Paul is saying, listen, if you want to know those that are truly followers of Christ and those that are not, look to their lives. Look to the fruit, Jesus would say. Right? Look to the ways. What he says, they walk. And you say, well, well, how do we know they walk? Well, look what he says here, verse 19. To their end, their end is destruction. And then he says this, their God is their belly. Literally, they, they have become their own God. They're their own God. Their belly, hey, whatever you desire, whatever you want, you go after, you fulfill it. It doesn't matter what God's word says. If God's word doesn't mean my life, that means God's word is wrong and my life trumps God's word. My life is the ultimate rook card or maybe the red one, right? Kind of. It's, it's the ultimate. God's Word can say what it wants, but I, I can play my trump at any point, and I've got that. And so he says, listen, their God is their belly. They're, they are their own God. They glory in their shame. And look what it says. Their minds are set on earthly things. And so he says, listen, guys, I want you to know who the true counterfeit is. It's those who live contrary to the Word of God. They live contrary. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You say, well, Blake, why is this such a big deal? Look what he said here. We, we, we kind of glossed over it, and that was intentional because I want to bring your attention to it. Verse 19 there. Their end. Where's this leading? He says, their end is what? Destruction. You say, why is it such a big deal? The people I'm following, their way of life is contrary to God's word. doesn't really matter. My life may be contrary. He says, I want you to know why this is so dangerous. Because where this ends is eternal destruction. That is eternal separation from God in a place the Bible declares is hell. A place that says there is an eternal fire. And I believe it's physical. It's a literal hell, a literal place separated from God. 
suffering for all eternity. He says, I want you to know those who reject God's word and the, and the, the salvation that is available in Christ, their end is destruction. And so my hope and prayer today is this won't be you. So with that lens, let's walk now through Acts 26, picking up with Paul. Remember, Paul has just finished his testimony. He's shared all about how Christ appeared to him, how Christ has appointed him as a servant. He says, and a witness to call people to turn from the darkness to the light, from the power of Satan, he says, to the power of God. That is Paul's calling, his, his responsibility. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, remember Agrippa has come, he's the king reigning over this area, this, this, this region. And he says, King Agrippa, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He says, I was obedient. Right? It's not simply that I had this great moment in life, and if we're not careful, we have that tendency to think, I'll never be as close to God as I was in Haiti. I'll never be as close to God as I was on that, that retreat. I'll never be as close to God as I was when I had that other relationship or those moments in my life. I'll never be as close to God as if when that time... Listen, here's what I want you and I to see. Oftentimes we're chasing after the heavenly vision when God is just after our obedience. Our obedience, right where you are. As beautiful and as amazing as that moment was in Acts chapter 9 when Saul was transformed... The beauty of it is, is the continuation of that obedience. That ongoing obedience is the evidence of Paul's genuine repentance. It's a beautiful moment. Paul calls us to that. He's saying, listen, I was obedient. And so he's going to call us to obedience, to a response to Jesus Christ. It's in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31, 32, Jesus speaks about two sons. And he says, listen, there was a dad that had two boys. And he went to the first son. He says, listen, it's time to go out and work on the farm. The son says, I'm not going to do it, dad. But later he changes his mind and he goes. He comes to the second son. He says, listen, it's time to go and work on the farm. And he says, yeah, dad, absolutely, I'm going to go. But he never goes. And so Jesus looks at those he's telling his story to and he asks a simple question. Who was actually obedient? The first son who said he wouldn't go but later went. Or the second son who said he, wasn't, he was going to go but never went. Which one do you think? The first or second son? The first. And here's what I want you to see. It's a beautiful moment. Look what it says here. But afterward, look what it says there. Afterward, he changed his mind and went. Here's an early whisper of what repentance is. It's a moment of grace in your and my life. You shouldn't be shocked today that you need to repent. God's not shocked by it. You and I shouldn't be shocked by it. We have lots of stuff in our lives that is messed up. But what happens here is a son that says, I'm not going to do it, but later has a moment of repentance to realize, you know what? I am called to obedience, even if it's not what I would choose or what I would like. And so Jesus says that is the evidence of obedience, and it is birthed in repentance. Literally, there a change of mind. And that's often what's happening. It's beautiful. Why? Because, listen, our repentance, our obedience is showered and covered in grace. It is a moment of God saying, listen, I know you haven't got it right, but I've not stopped loving you. I've not given up on you because you, you were there last night or you did this this past week or you've thrown the towel in on your spouse or you've not obeyed your parents in the last six months and you've totally just derailed anything they're trying to say or speak into your life. I want you to know that today is a moment of change 
and to beget that change, to birth that change. Here's my son who took all that sin and shame of your past and he took it on himself and he gives you back his perfect life. That birth of grace begins to move us into repentance, saying, wow, that God, you would love someone like me. And so Jesus says, it's obedience, guys. Even when you don't get it right at first, I want you to know there is grace that you and I today would change our ways and we would go. This is what Paul is preaching. He says again back in verse 19 of Acts 26, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared, right, if you've ever wondered, I wonder what, what great, this great Paul, right, maybe the, one of the greatest, undeniably one of the greatest missionaries to ever live. I want to know what did Paul teach and preach about? Well, Paul tells us. He says, I declared, right, so that's the word there, declared, it helps us tell what he's talking about. First to those in Damascus. Now, what's interesting is, is Saul in Acts chapter 9 was on the road to where? Damascus. Where did Paul first begin telling people about Jesus and the change of life? Where does God want you to begin sharing with people about your change of life? Right where you are now. The scary temptation Satan's bait is, it's always when you get to that next step. Right? Like when you get overseas, or when you get this right, or when you get that new job, or when I get next year into high school, or when I get now married, or when we have children, or when... or. Satan's is this bread, is this bait that you and I would continue to put it off. Paul says, listen, guys, it was first right there in Damascus when, when God changed my life, I began to share with those that were there. And if God took me somewhere else, I shared with them too. But listen, it's right where you are. It's your family. It's your friends. It's your job. It's that teacher in your classroom. It's the students in your class. Declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the re region of Judea, and also the Gentiles. Look what he says here, two things specific. That they, now that's beautiful, right? They should, look what he says here, two things. They should repent, and what? And turn to God. Now it's beautiful, he says they, why? Because Paul doesn't pick favorites. He says, listen, we don't get to go and say to some people, you need to repent, and other people... You don't need as much repentance. No, he says it's everyone. In fact, in verse 22, he says to small and great alike. He says to those that think they're not important, to the people that think they're the very most important. I was telling everyone they should repent and turn to God. One of the things I love, if you're with us on Wednesday night um, in Zimbabwe, when they talk about salvation, they talk about when they repented. So if they come forward, they'll introduce themselves and they'll say, in 1984, I repented of my sins and confessed Christ as my Savior. Right? They acknowledge there was a time of repentance. And listen, here's, here's often, I think, a, a danger for us. We're almost ashamed or embarrassed to call anyone to repentance. We want to leave that part out. But this is what Paul was continually declaring to everyone. That there was a need of repentance. There was a need of turning to God. And what we're doing when we don't call people to repentance, first and foremost, we're not being biblically faithful to the text. But we're also in a subtle way saying, Christ really isn't worthy giving up that for. If we're not calling people to repentance, we're saying in essence, Christ's sacrifice, His love, His grace, His mercy is not great enough. It's not worthy enough of them giving up their sin or whatever's going on in their life. 
Brothers and sisters, we cannot be ashamed to call people to repentance. To call them to turn to God, not to us. We're calling them to turn to God, to repent. That word repentance, they change their mind. It's saying, listen, my way's wrong. God, your way is right. It's a beautiful moment in Luke chapter 22. It's Thursday night. Uh, Jesus has been there talking with the disciples. They've, they've had the Lord's Supper. And um, the disciples are beginning to hear the bad news that they're going to deny Jesus. And Peter and Jesus enter in this dialogue because Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I, I will never deny you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, well actually, Pete, you're not going to deny me once, not twice, but well, how many? Three times, Pete. And in this moment of grace and beauty and the power of Christ, just, just glistens forth. Listen to it. Verse 32 of Luke 22. Jesus looks at Peter and says to him, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then look what he says there. And when you have what? When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Do you see it? There's a moment right there when you have turned again, when you have turned back. Peter, when you have repented. Jesus expected repentance in the life of his followers this was one of his very closest of the inner three and he knew he wasn't going to get it right and guess what he didn't give up on him he didn't say dude you're out of the club he said no listen peter listen i prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have repented when you have turned back when you have left that life of denying me see some of you are there you're denying him maybe not with your lips but with your life and he's ushering you today. He's whispering to you today. It's time to turn again. It's time to turn back. Listen to what happens here. Similar text uh, of, of the same thing that's happening. Verse 15 of Second Corinthians 3. He says, yes to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil. Look at this here. There's a veil that lies over their what? Over their what? It's over their hearts. But when one does what? Turns to who? The Lord, what happens to the veil? It's removed. Do you see that? You know, he's speaking here about the, the Jewish people. They don't see it in the Old Testament that Christ is the promised Messiah. That everything, Moses and all the prophets have been looking forward to Jesus coming. They don't see that. But he says, listen, when one turns, the veil of their hearts is removed. They begin to see clearly. They say, so what does it mean to turn? Look what he says here, verse 14. I want to read the whole thing and then just focus in on this. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Now, there appears to be a veil that's over the mind and also over the heart, right? Look what he says here. Because only through who? Christ is it what? Taken away. So what's turning the Lord look like? Turning to Christ. It's putting your faith and trust in Him. Again, this is not, in essence, a work that we do to be saved. This is simply a response of saying, wow. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is up there preaching and teaching about Christ and who he is. And it says in verse 36, right around there, verse 36 says, and 37, it says, The people are cut to the heart, and they cry out, What must we do to be saved? And Peter responds in verse 38 of Acts 2, Repent! Repent! 
turn to Christ, God's Messiah. So it is this turning again, this need of turning, of responding. And so that's where Paul is. He says, listen, guys, there is a desperate need of everywhere I go of people to repent and turn to God. Emily and I continually have this dialogue. Why? Because we're raising three sinners. This morning I was reminded of how true that is. But we cannot be shocked and surprised as parents, as grandparents, as friends, as neighbors, as co-workers when someone does you wrong. Why? Because we are all sinners. We too, as Jeremiah says, Jeremiah says, our heart is desperately wicked above all else. Who can trust it? I'm not, I don't have to be shocked in those moments when my kids blow it. Why? Because I know how many times this week I've blown it. I know they're going to need grace. I know they're going to need mercy. I know they're going to need forgiveness. I know they're going to need the truth. Only in Christ is it taken away. I cannot conform my, the hearts of my sons any more than you can conform the hearts of your children or grandchildren or anyone else. It is a work of God, but God calls us to show them the truth and call them to repentance, to turn to God. So Peter is, or Paul, I'm sorry. He says, listen, guys, my, my continual declaration of preaching is they should repent and turn to God. And look what he says here. They should, he says, performing deeds. This is the living, right? In keeping with their repentance. He says, listen, guys, this is not cheap grace. There's this mantra. It was in the Bible in Romans chapter 6. Paul addresses it. But it's also in our lives today. And it's this school of thought that like, hey, well, since God will forgive me, why won't I just live any way I want? And then I can always say, God, I'm sorry. Paul addresses that in Romans 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Why? Because the thought was this. Well, if God will forgive me of anything and everything I do, then why not live any way I want and just ask him to forgive me? And everybody will say, wow, that's a great forgiving God. And so he says, listen, guys. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? God forbid, he says. We have died to sin. How shall we live in it any longer? We've died to sin, he says. This is not the way for the follower of Christ. And that's what Paul is telling him. Listen, guys. There is a performing of deeds in keeping with their repentance. So it was with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is there on the shore and he, he's baptizing people and all these people are coming to John and, and John looks up one day and he sees these Pharisees, these religious leaders coming to him and he says, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And then he tells the religious leaders of that day, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, listen, guys, I want you to know that you are called to bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Now, listen, Paul is there preaching a calling to repentance. We've already heard that Peter was there in Acts chapter 2 preaching about repentance. Jesus came on the scene, and guess what he preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So could I ask you, if you looked at the New Testament, could you find me four greater names than John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, and Paul? You would be very hard stumped to find any four that you could replace out of that list. And every single one of them preached repentance. And even more so, they lived it. They lived it. Now obviously Christ was sinless and so 
We're not speaking of Christ in essence in need to repent. But man, he lived a life of humility and submission, of dependence upon God to glorify him. So remember Peter, he was called. Jesus says, listen, Pete, after, after you've turned back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And you might wonder, well, what's it look like even to repent? Like, could I have some practical examples? I think Peter's life provides some of that. It's, a, it's one of the, those, like, heart-wrenching moments that takes place. It's in Luke chapter 22. And Luke records something for us that none of the other gospel writers do. Jesus is in the midst of his trial. He's, he's experiencing already being spit and mocked and the beard's being plucked and, and struck with... I mean, there's many things that are happening. In the midst of this, Peter has denied Jesus how many times? Three. And at the third denial, Luke records something amazing. It's one of those verses I've always wondered, like, ah. It's verse 61 of Luke 22. Peter denies Jesus for the third time, and it says something amazing happened. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Have you ever been there? In the midst of your sin and shame, God just, you feel like that brother just turns and looks at you? And Peter, Luke records just a few simple words. Verse 62 of Luke 22. says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. There's a moment of repentance when you and I begin to see what our sin is when God looks at us and he shows us what it is. And there's a brokenness like, oh my goodness, God, I cannot believe I just said that. I cannot believe, Lord, I would have treated my spouse that God, I cannot believe I've, I've acted this way toward my parents. God, I cannot believe I would have spoken that to my coworker. God, I cannot. Oh man, God. God, look, I'm in trouble, Lord. And so look what happens with Peter's life. We see Peter weeping, and, and later we hear about the resurrection in Luke 24, and there's Peter, he's running to the tomb. Why? Because what does repentance look like? It's, it's a running to God. It's a running saying, God, I've I, I messed up. I'm, God, I, I'm coming home. It's in John chapter 21 when they see that Jesus is there on the, sea, on the seashore after he's been raised from the dead, and, and Peter is the first one. He does a cannonball for Christ. He just jumps out of there, bam, can open or whatever. He swims up to the shore. And then in John 21, we have this beautiful dialogue of Jesus restoring Peter. It's in Acts chapter 1 when Peter is there and he sees Christ and hears his words as he ascends back to the Father. It's Peter when he's there at Acts chapter 2. This guy that has blown and denied Christ once, twice, three times. He's there proclaiming the gospel. It's Peter as he goes to prison and experiences all the trials throughout Acts. And then it's Peter that we get this little vignette about his life in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul shows up on the scene and says that Peter was not acting in accordance with the gospel. And in that small moment, Paul rebukes Peter, but it is a reminder to you and I that a life of the follower of Jesus Christ will not be a life of perfection. It wasn't even for Peter. Why? Because our ongoing obedience is an evidence of genuine repentance. And Peter, in that moment, still needed repentance. So don't be shocked today or squirming if you're here and you need repentance. The terrifying thing is if you're here today and you don't think you need it. All of us need the cross. And the beauty is the Bible continually teaches the ground is level there. Why? Because everyone is in need of forgiveness and repentance. 
And here's a beautiful moment. I love Proverbs 24 and 16. It says that the righteous person falls seven times. The seven is a number for completion. It says, listen, the righteous person's going to struggle. If you're a follower of Christ, you're going to have moments, maybe even times, seasons of struggling. But the beautiful thing, it says that they also, they do what? They rise again. You see, an evidence that you have been born again is not that you simply have made mistakes. No, it's in the midst of those mistakes that you bow to your knees and repent and say, God, I knew I said I would never, ever do this again, but God, I've done it again. And the grace of God just comes over you and I and reminds us of texts like Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrates his love for you and I in this, that while we were still sinners in the midst of our sin, Christ died for us. And it's in that moment of God loving me in the midst of my sin that it just begs me to return and realize there's one that's already taken my sin and shame. That's rising again. That's evidence that you are a follower of Christ. Not simply that you've messed up, but that God has restored you and you have returned to Him. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Some of you are here and you're wondering, well, Blake, you just don't understand where I've been. Maybe Jesus' story might help you. It's one of the more familiar texts in all of Scripture. It's in Luke 15. and Jesus telling these stories, and he tells a story about a father that has two sons again. He says, listen, there was a younger son that came to his dad and said, Hey, Pops, I know I get your inheritance when you die, but I just wish you were dead now, so go ahead and give me the money. And says the father goes ahead and gives him the money after all this disrespect. It says that this guy goes out, and it says that he literally... Um, I think that the King James may use riotous living. Um, He spends it on prostitutes and all of that. Literally for those in maybe common vernacular younger people, he was making it rain. But there came an end when the rain stopped. And it said when the rain stopped, the prostitutes and the friends and everybody were gone. It says a great famine struck the land. And it says that man had no food and he longed to even eat what the pigs were eating. It says that he was looking to this food and he longed after it. And then this moment happens in verse 17 of Luke 15. As he's longing for the pig slop, his life is not where he thought it would end up. This was not probably the path he had thought. This was not what he would have planned. But he is there. And in verse 17 of Luke 15, a moment of repentance happens. It says that he came to his senses and he thought about who? His father. He thought about his father. Some of you are there. You never thought you would be there. You wouldn't have chosen this path. You wondered if you could come back ever. Jesus tells the story of a man that was in the midst of that. It says he came to his senses. He began to think about his father. And he went home and says while he was still a long way off, his father did what? He ran to him. He embraced, he says, this is my son. He was dead and he is alive. Why? Because God loves those that will repent. He loves those that will willingly acknowledge they are not good, but only Jesus is. He glorifies him and he's willing to hug us in the midst of our pig slop. I don't know of anyone else. There's no other God like that. There's no other God like that. All other gods, you have to work your way to them. The beauty of the gospel of Christianity is that God came to you because you could never make it to Him. It is the gospel of grace. And that's what's happening here. And you'd say, well, Blake, that's just beautiful. I love that. But you don't understand. I don't even have the strength to come back. Listen to what Paul says. 
He says, listen, I was preaching this message, and for this reason the Jews, verse 21 of Acts 26, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. And look what he says. It's a, it's a powerful moment. He says, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. So he has help that comes from God. And then this simple statement. And so I what? I stand. You're right. You and I don't have the strength, guys. We can't do it on our own. But that is the beauty of God. He loves us in the midst of it. And so we can be like Paul and say, listen, there's no reason why I should be here. I don't have any good re. I don't have any validity to this. All I can simply say to you is, I stand here today because God's helped me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? That's what Paul would say. 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You're right. God should have never picked me for his team, right? There's a team for kickball, and like there's like the last people that we picked. I'm like the dude that's standing behind the tree over there, and he walked over and said, I, I, I want you. Me? Yeah, I, I want you on my team. And he just simply says, well, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul says, listen, I probably shouldn't be standing here today. They should have already killed me. They should have already taken me out. They've had so many plots. But I want you to know there's a God by the grace of God in whom I stand. And so I would ask you simply today, Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. A life that is more abundant and free. Turn your eyes on who? On Jesus. Look full at His wonderful face. And then the things of this earth, this world, they're going to go strangely dim. In the light of His glory and what? Grace. 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 God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than what? All our sin. It's the beauty of the gospel. So repentance is rooted in what Christ has already done for you and I. Maybe you're walking in darkness. You're in the pig slop. I want you to know God's not giving up on you. Today, the invitation is to you and to me. I need repentance too. Preachers are not above it. I need repentance too. I need to turn to God. The invitation is always rooted in what Christ has already done for us. It's a response to His grace. Do you need it? If you do today, would you just glorify the Lord by just bowing your heart, your life, your knee maybe, your face, and just saying, Lord, I need Jesus. I confess my way has been wrong. And Lord God, you know where I am. You know where I've been. I'm just confessing I need this amazing grace that the Bible is preaching and teaching about. I want that. And if it is indeed available in Jesus alone, I confess that He alone is my only hope. He's my only Savior. He's my only Lord. Here's my life, Lord. I just, I'm turning to You in repentance and saying, God, save me. God, forgive me. You know what God's Word says? That He is faithful and just. If we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive and purify from all you've done that's unrighteous. Come to Him. Come home today.
Come home today to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, in the strong name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you by the help that only comes from God, the power that only comes from God, we stand. Indeed, Lord God, we have all made much of a mess of things. There's no one here that is above needing repentance. We all need repentance and forgiveness and a turning to God. And I pray by the strong name of Jesus Christ alone that you would open eyes, that you would speak truth. And for those that even now in this moment Satan is saying they are too dirty, I pray, God, that you, by your unbelievably benevolent, kind, lavish grace, would call them, call me, away from the things of sin in my life that do not reflect you and call us to Jesus. Father, we turn our eyes from evil things and we look and behold your glory and God, your sweet, amazing grace. It's in your name I pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning, I invite you simply to Christ. Not to me, not to the carpet. I invite you to Christ, the one who can take away your sin. Would you repent today, acknowledging your way of life is wrong and God's is right? Would you turn to Jesus and call out to Him as your only hope of forgiveness before God and your only hope of acceptance for all eternity? You are loved more than you could ever imagine. And it was demonstrated in the cross when God died for you. Do not reject it today. Respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Thirst for a drink from the well, Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar.